everyone. Welcome back to the Modern CFO Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Seski. For about 20 episodes, we've covered so many aspects of the fundraising lifecycle and unique approaches to scaling companies, from crowdfunding or ICOs, venture capital, private equity, secondaries, even IPOs. We have had conversations covering almost every aspect about equity. But today, we're focusing on one of the niche specialties of financing, venture debt. What is it? Is it new? Who can pull this lever most effectively? And what do venture debt providers do to differentiate themselves? To bring some expertise and experience to this conversation, we're joined by James Turner of Fifth Line Capital. James, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I appreciate it. So let's dive right in. Let's first discuss Fifth Line and your background. What were some of the fragmentations of the market that got you excited to start your firm? Yeah, so we actually initially started as strictly, you know, project-based CFO services, really, you know, finance modeling here and there, a little bit of financial cleanup. Pretty early on, one of our clients or prospective clients at the time, uh, was raising an equity round and they brought on venture debt. And at the time, you know, we're like, well, what is this? This isn't something they teach you in school. So we looked into it and realized that it was a lot broader of a market than just the Silicon Valley banks of the world. So we pretty much paused everything we were doing, shut it all down for a few months, just did all kinds of research, getting connected with really any and every possible lender in the space we could get a hold of. You know, so, you know, once we felt we had a robust enough network, we started taking on some clients. Uh, You know, what we saw was, you know, SVB, WTI, Hercules, you know, you Google venture debt, those are the guys that pop up. You know, they'll, SVB loves lending to companies with, you know, big name VCs behind them. Hercules, you know, they love writing the, you know, 30, $40 million checks and up. Uh, WTI loves heavily funded, you know, very liquid companies. You know, those companies don't really need us as much, but that's a pretty small segment of the market. So what we found were, you know, a pretty robust network of lenders that look at, you know, really the other 90% of the market, you know, the companies that may not have the Sequoias or the Andreessen's of the world as their investor, they probably haven't raised, you know, a $25 million Series B in the past six months. They may not be doubling revenue and doing $50 million this year. So we found a pretty big network of lenders who really focus on that space. And that's really where we tried to add our value is, you know, targeting those companies. So you mentioned that you started with CFO advisory type services. Are you still doing that today? Yeah. So initially we shut it down to focus purely on venture debt. And then around mid last year, we saw an opportunity by, you know, how we brought on some team members to go back out and start offering those services. So you know, now we like to tell companies, you know, we get involved either in an operational or strategic financial role. So we'll still do the CFO, you know, recurring reporting type of projects or ongoing work, but we'll also get involved now on whether it be ongoing, you know, risk analysis and financial strategy side of things or more project-based work as well, which can include, you know, one-time risk analysis and solution implementation all the way through raising venture debt. So, you know, we do offer a pretty broad range of services to early and growth stage companies, but, you know, we are still pretty centered around the venture debt advisory. So you found this fragmentation. Let's talk about uh, your earlier life. Were you on the investing side or entrepreneur side prior? Yeah, so I get this question a lot. Everyone assumes I worked at a bank or a lender or some type of fund. None of the above. I actually started my first business in college. It was a small e-commerce business and I'm growing it out of my college apartment. 
ended up selling it once I graduated. I took the money, got involved in the stock market for a little bit. Didn't really love it too much. It wasn't as much fun as they make it look like in the movies. So, you know, I wanted to get involved with, you know, really building and running businesses, but I obviously didn't have the money to get involved at the time with, you know, a multi-million dollar company. So I started getting involved in called a hands-on advisory type of role with a lot of early stage companies, anywhere from pre-revenue to very early stage revenue companies that didn't have much on the business side of things. So I would get involved on an equity basis, you know, take a, an equity chunk in exchange for developing essentially the business and financial infrastructure of what was essentially a product, you know, that they were trying to get out into the market. And that's around the time my business partner and I ended up started working together. And you know, at that point, when we started looking at offering the CFO services and, you know, leading us to, you know, the scenario I talked about earlier where we discovered venture debt. So let's talk about who this conversation is really aimed towards. First, what are you seeing in the venture debt landscape that is attractive to founders at you know what stage? And I know that Fifthline has its specialties that it looks for. What has changed over the course of an explosion of SaaS businesses, of you know the venture capital world that has created this runway for you to explore more and more avenues to work with more entrepreneurs? Yeah, I would say more so than anything, it's just the number of options out there, which, you know, can be viewed as both obviously a pro where it's not just a handful of lenders out there that are like it was 10 years ago, where they have a pretty you know specific credit profile that they look for. But at the same time, you know, it could be overwhelming. You know, you hear about all these different names out there, but, you know, if you're a CFO and you're not 100% well-versed in the venture debt market, or this isn't something you've done very recently because it is evolving all the time. You know, that can mean 30, 40 names. You have to shoot a ton of emails to, you have to disclose all your documentation to, make a bunch of phone calls to handle essentially preliminary diligence processes with probably out of 30, probably at least 20 of them from, you know, good chance for them all to come back and say no. So I'd say the opportunity that we've identified as a result is, you know, we know who fits where. You know, it used to be if you were a SaaS company, you know, and you raised money from a big name VC or any VC, really, you knew who your options were. But that was the only time you could really go raise and venture debt. So where we actually see the greatest opportunity in the clients we work with is they're most of the time in between major equity events. And what I mean by that is they're mostly in between either two priced equity rounds, you know, series A and B, B and C or whatever it may be. Or in between their most recent equity round and then driving toward an exit, and they need to boost revenue by X percent and they're going to need, you know, uh, $5 million to get there, but they don't want to go to their insiders right now or get diluted by having another outside investor. So we'll come in and, you know, based on the network of lenders that we've established, we're able to find the right lending partner for them that gets them to where they need to go without having them have to go and raise an equity round. Right. So this is a pretty unique opportunity that provides at least bare minimum, a ton of flexibility prior to, you know, some sort of major dilution in the next round. One of the things I want to kind of step back and talk a little bit more conversationally about is the role of equity in general is such an amazing tool for entrepreneurs, because if you think about how VCs operate, they can price into their fund, you know, a third of the fund failing. And the risk is not really absorbed by the entrepreneur in a way that repaying debt can be. So this is really around built around established businesses. So I think if the hesitancy around even repaying the debt is a question, it's probably not for these entrepreneurs, right? Yeah, I think what's really interesting is some of the 
redefining of some of these traditional bank, kind of what you were saying earlier about how it would be difficult for relatively young firms that are scaling quickly to access loans in general from traditional banks. Just like in that model of transformation, there are different assets that are slowly being redefined in software and technology companies. I guess my big question is when you think about you know, when equity or debt is most valuable, you said one of your differentiators is you know where all the pieces fit. Can you give me a couple of examples of where things just don't fit well or how the redefining of some of these assets and liabilities has created a new fit for you? Yeah. So when it comes to what makes the most sense when, you know, when you're just trying to get in the market, you have a few pilot customers and that's about it. Equity is your best bet, right? And that doesn't have to be necessarily a big VC, like me, family, friends, or whatever it may be. But that's when equity makes sense. The other time equity that we've seen makes the most sense is if you really have a robust capital need that is leagues beyond where you are revenue-wise. So we've talked to companies, you know, and it happens a lot more in the life science space, in the deep tech space, you know, like quantum computing, things like that, that take years to develop any type of even prototype. They'll be generating maybe a couple million dollars a year, but they'll have a $10 million outlay of costs over the next 18 months. That's not a debt play. That really is an equity, a specialized equity type of need. Now, once a company hits, you know, a couple of scenarios, because uh, it is different based on your business model. If you're a traditional business to business SaaS company, you know, you fit all the metrics, you know, decent retention, margin, you can still be cash burning, but annual contracts, things like that, the bread and butter SaaS at their earliest stages, you know, call it uh, maybe $500,000 a year or so. If you don't have a robust capital need, there are early stage SaaS financing options, you know, that have popped up. A lot of them are platform based, like a pipe or cat chase. But once you hit around the 2 million ARR mark, that's when, you know, more, I guess, true venture debt options start opening up to you. You know, you can look at taking on, you know, maybe a million dollar term loan or line of credit at that point, and that can continue scaling with you as you grow. So, and most of the time, what we're doing on educating our clients is, you know, they'll tell us, hey, you know, we're doing $10 million a year. We need $12 million or this won't be a fit. Like, okay, do you need 12 million now? Or do you need 12 million over the next two years? Because that's how they've always thought about equity. They're like, oh, well, we actually need, you know, 12 million over the next two to two and a half years. We run through their plan with them and say, okay, you know, let's model this out. Well, let's start with five to seven now. And that scales with you over time. And we've had a lot of clients come around to the idea as a result. A lot of entrepreneurs, especially, they hear the word debt and they mean like, eh, no, we're not sure. How do we repay it? We're, you know, we're burning cash. Venture debt providers look at companies in a very similar way that the equity investors do in my personal experience with the caveat, obviously, as we don't need a 10x return on this. And we also need to be paid every month on our capital, but they are banking on the ability for the entrepreneur to grow. They are banking that there is validity in what they're offering and scalability. And that eventually down the road, someone will come along and buy the company or provide another equity investment. So opportunity for venture debt does come to companies a lot sooner than they think. I think those are all really great points. Also, if, well, first of all, I really like that we're having this conversation because I think it slowly is pulling back what I think is relatively opaque still when it comes to specialty financing options, just because it could be tailored so specifically to individual situations. And just like 
anyone who would go out and raise VC. It's worth shopping around to see what else is out there. So it's kind of a complicated process, but I think we're doing a good job of at least explaining how and when it makes the most sense to start exploring. Are there other best practices that your CFOs or entrepreneurs should be you know, considering when it comes to venture debt? I think I saw a great door quote about if you're going to raise venture debt, I think it was something along the lines of you can raise it, just don't spend it. You know, Treat it as something to get the next employee to leverage an ongoing initiative. Right? It's one of those things that's purely putting a little bit of gasoline on you know, a small, small fire that's already existing. It's not uh, something you go out and just spend like it would be, you know, in a traditional financing round. Are there any other best practices that you can relay that have you seen have been more successful in creating a, a higher valuation in between, you know, a series B or and C round? Yeah. I mean, whether it's debt or equity, because I think one of the common misconceptions is a lender is going to be meaner to you than an equity investor. At the end of the day, everyone's writing a check to you, you know, and everyone's looking for a return. So, you know, my theory personally, and, you know, this is my personal opinion is you should never take on any capital equity or debt unless you know where it's going. Obviously, you want to have room for a rainy day or an off plan scenario. But, you know, if you're raising, whether it's $5 million in equity or debt, you should have a good idea, in my opinion, on where at least $3 million of that is going. You should have a product roadmap, a hiring plan for sales, marketing, whatever it may be. What I've seen that works the most for companies is just that. You know, we're actually working with a few companies now where they're profitable or at least break even, you know, which is rare in the growth stage market, but they have a pretty extensive product development roadmap and they're trying to drive toward an acquisition in a couple of years. And they're like, well, you know, we can raise another venture round, but we're cash flow break even. We don't want to go raise another venture round and sell off 10% of the company to get the same amount of capital. So, you know, we're in process of securing them alone. That's going to allow them to go into a cash burn mode, but it's very strategic. You know, they have a direct correlation, a proven strategy that scales their top line. And when someone's buying a company, that's obviously what they look at. What is the top line? So, you know, I think the best successes come from when you know you're going to spend the money and you know how it's going to go out the door and making sure that it's not just capital they're going to have sit on your balance sheet for no reason. Absolutely. I just finished the podcast with an amazing seasoned CFO and the response to a similar question was something brilliant along the lines of, it's only dilution if you don't have a proper calculation for the ROI on every dollar coming in through that round. And just the concision of that, I was like, I was blown away. I was like, there we go. That is the the way we should all be thinking about this. And that kind of opens up a really natural and organic way to start talking about sort of the venture landscape right now is it's really hot. You know, some of these valuations seem somewhat detached from reality, way, way bigger rounds, fewer opportunities, more dollars flowing. What does that mean to you and your business right now? Do you see just more opportunities because there's so many companies in between financing rounds that you can you know, talk to, or is it more competitive? What does that mean to you right now? I think it honestly depends on the entrepreneur. I think, unfortunately, even beyond the entrepreneur and you know the person who founded the company, it depends on the board. I had a great conversation with a CEO of a company. It was right before Christmas. You know, he was telling me he needs you know twelve million dollars. Every analysis that he's run, that the board has run, that their investment bankers have run, will allow them to exit, you know, sell the company for up to a quarter billion dollars, if not more. And he's like, the problem is, I need twelve million dollars to get there. And the only equity investors I have talked to want to write me a $50 million check 
at a $300 million valuation, and we are not worth $300 million. I won't try to quote the stats from what I read the other day because I don't have them and I don't want to be too far off. But I do know it was the vast majority of companies who raise a Series B end up drastically underperforming because they have to tell their VCs, uh, you know, whether it's current or prospective, certain targets, right, to justify a these massive valuations. And they're just not grounded in reality. You know, they're not something that's anything more than numbers on a spreadsheet that they build out. So they end up laying off sales teams, missing quotas, and then they have flat or down rounds, whether they're inside or a new round down the road. So what I always tell people is, you know, personally, I think it's a great opportunity for the debt markets is, you know, like that CEO I told you about, I talked to you right before Christmas, $12 million for his company is nothing. You know, it's a very good deal for his size of company. And that's all he needs. He's not going to have to justify a massive exit down the road based on that $12 million raise. He just needs to be able to repay that loan over the next 12 to 24 months until he sells the company. That's really where I think companies see the most value. Now, the problem is, and that, you know, I talked to companies that have been, uh, you know, fully funded by the founder, maybe some family, friends, but not institutionally backed. And their company technically has a valuation of like $100,000, but they're doing millions of dollars a year. The way the founder sees it all the time is if their experience is, it doesn't matter if my shares in my company are worth a dollar, a million dollars, or $20 million until I sell the company. And I want to own as much of the company when I do go to sell it regardless. VCs, they need to show a certain amount of return on their portfolio every year or sometimes every quarter to their LPs. So we've seen, unfortunately, that VCs and the boards cannot have their, I guess, intentions aligned with what may be best for the founder or for the company because they have different things driving them than the CEO and founder does. Right. Just like yeah, your CEO is reporting to shareholders. These VCs have LPs as well to report to. Yeah, and occasionally everyone's always fundraising. Everyone's always fundraising. Okay, so you've done a really great job, I think, putting out the you know the value prop for that. So one of the things that I've been thinking about during this conversation has been the diligence process and choosing providers and lenders. You know, obviously, you know, I've seen seed investors that promise seven days of diligence and will either say no or write you a check. It's like, great. Well, yeah, there's you're talking about funding an idea, you know, seed stage. And then you've got private equity folks that could tie up deals for years. Same with M&A or not, you know, just their long term diligence processes. When it comes to venture debt, what does the diligence process look like? What can entrepreneurs expect? And what are kind of the competitive advantages that outside of strictly interest rates and warrants and all of the ways you can pull these levers to create a specialty financing deal? Is it still a people business at the end of the day, sort of like venture and P? Lenders are a business just like I am, right? Just like you guys are. You have customers, clients, users, viewers, whatever it may be. So at the end of the day, everything has to be a relationship business. What I have found compared to private equity and venture capital is it is certainly a lot lighter of a process. And it really depends on the stage of the company. We stick with you know, technology, we stick with services businesses, CPG brands, you know, businesses that are much less deep expertise. So it's not very often we're coming across, uh, you know, a quantum computing company that is requires deep expertise or a life sciences company, right, that needs an entire, you know, pharmaceutical consulting, you know, team brought in for the lender. We don't really deal with that. So it is really centered more around the numbers and the team. So a standard diligence process 
you know, the initial review from the time that we get engaged, an initial term sheet is, you know, historical financials, usually just the past couple of years, projections, metric reviews, you know, retention, churn, concentration analysis, things like that, pretty light. And then they want to know a little bit more about, you know, the growth strategy of the company, just basic, hey, let me get comfortable with this opportunity. Term sheet comes out, the final diligence process usually just takes, you know, a few weeks and then the final loan documents go out. I'd say the most common diligence process that we see, and it obviously varies a bit deal to deal, but it's an informal audit of the books. So they're not, you know, going in with full CPAs and reviewing every transaction run through the company, but we're primarily working with spreadsheets, right? During the review process. So they want to know, okay, these transactions real, make sure you're reporting things properly. So that's usually a pretty light process. I usually take less than a week. They'll usually meet with the management teams. And one of the benefits I have seen since COVID is it is either virtual or in-person. It uh, used to be always in-person, which can obviously delay things with travel schedules. But now, you know, it's either a virtual meeting or an in-person meeting. They'll be with the CEO, maybe one of the board members, depending on how actively involved they are, you know, product lead, things like that. They just want to get to know the team because they're going to be working with them for, you know, two, three, four, five years, whatever the duration of the facility will be. And then after that, usually, you know, they'll do some basic market research on their side, run a few risk analysis once they see, uh, confirm the financials and, you know, loan documentation goes out, which honestly, loan documentation, we see take probably 50% at least of the entire final stages. You know, the core of diligence is usually done in just a couple, maybe a few weeks. And then the loan documentation is what takes the longest. But it's certainly a lot lighter than, you know, a comparable stage equity investment. Or excuse me, a lot and, shorter. Yeah. And so the benefit of coming to fifth line first and going through some of these advisory practices, that would be to get organized prior to even approaching or even figuring out whether or not the debt's appropriate. Is that right? Yeah, I'd say there are you know, a handful of benefits and not to sound too salesy, but you know, what I always tell people is look, if someone just wrote you a $25 million check. Do not come to us. Go talk to Silicon Valley Bank. They'll give you what you want at 3%. You can't beat it. You know, so I'd say for the clients that come to us and they're the best fit for us, it's, hey, look, you know, I'm looking for $5 million. This is where I'm at. This is what I got. Most of the time, it's, these are some issues I've had over the past couple of years and going forward. What are my options? And then we'll tell them, just to your point, these are your options. This is what it's going to look like. You know, we always outline up front before we engage with them. These are the risks and the hurdles that you'll see and that we should be prepared to review during diligence, whether it's retention, liquidity, flat revenue, things like that. And then what terms and structures will look like. And, you know, sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no. But if they say yes, then really where we plug in is, okay, here's what you're going to need to, you know, get everything wrapped up. And to your point on the readiness, you're exactly spot on. We have some companies, even institutionally bad companies that give us, you know, quarterly summaries, you know, like, okay, we have to work with them on breaking things out to monthly, breaking, you know, not just an OPEX category, but we need to see what sales, what's marketing, what's R&D. So we get them all ready because otherwise they'll bundle up this package that's maybe 50% of the way there, send it out to a bunch of lenders that aren't a fit for them in the first place. But sometimes by the time they figure out that they're not a fit, they already spend hours trying to work with the lender to get them everything they need. We tell them up front, look, these are all the things that we're going to need. This is the format we needed in. We work with them on getting it organized as they need us to. And then we go to the lenders. We handle the review process. 
and leverage our relationship to get the terms, you know, streamlined in the first place, make it a lot quicker and not waste their time with lenders that aren't a fit for them for whatever reason. And then obviously our relationships allow us to negotiate a lot stronger than someone who might be coming in cold off the street. Got it. So how are you especially trying to educate this market? I think there's a basic understanding, but I don't know that it's wildly well known about how specialty financing might be utilized for venture-backed firms. I know there's so much media around every financing round of a scaling company from your Sequoia or Andreessen, but how are you addressing this massive pool of other VC-backed and other backed companies? As far as how we educating them on what their options are or how we yeah, exactly. contact with them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just trying to educate the market a little bit better on you know how these scenarios can benefit them. Yeah. So first we do things like go on your podcast like this. <laughs> but when we talk to the companies, you know, what we found is I'd say probably half the time you can almost see or hear a little light bulb go off in their head, like, oh, this might actually be an option. Because their experience and our Honestly, some of the toughest initial clients, which end up being the best, are the ones that have the experience that did this 10 years ago. They worked with SVB or Hercules or WTI, and those are their contacts. And they think that, okay, I did a deal with them 10 years ago. I can do it now, no problem. One of our greatest clients we've ever had, that was the conversation I had with her. Um, you know, while I can call X, Y, and Z, it's like, okay, well, you know, declining revenue business, you know, you're burning 100% of your revenue each year, you have three months of cash left, please tell me if you can find something from them. And, you know, I got a call from her two weeks later, three weeks later, and she's like, yep, I can't do it. You know, let's start the process. So what we try to educate the market on is one, it is an option either sooner than you think, or in different scenarios than you think. You don't need a big equity round. You don't need to be generating $10 million a year. And as far as, you know, beyond that, sometimes it's on the other side. Yes, it's an option, but it's not Silicon Valley bank rates. It's not 3%. It's not your SBA loan that is, you know, at whatever an SBA deal charges nowadays. But the rates are, you know, 8 to 12% on the rate. That's compared to your car loan or, you know, an SBA loan. Yeah, that's pretty high. But if you compare it to an equity raise, it's a lot cheaper, right? So, you know, there are two sides of the education. One is on if it's an option and letting them know that it is, you know, in that case, but also letting them know, you know, you may not have all of the options that you thought, and this is where you fit in the market. And we do do that education for clients upfront to let them know what their options will be if we go forward with the process. That's great. Maybe we can link to uh, some of those posts, maybe some of the educational sources that you've already put together into the show notes. Maybe that'd be a good idea. So yeah. let's take a step back for just a moment here. And one of the questions I ask on every podcast, and again, this has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the conversation, can be completely industry agnostic, but especially during the pandemic is kind of where this all started. I always ask people what they felt is underestimated in the world today. And you know, CFOs have a very specific viewpoint on the world. We've gotten everything from the way that the push the digitizations happen so rapidly, people don't quite fully appreciate yet, or back to work may not return to the way it has been in the past. And then we've gotten completely random answers from childcare to all of these different things. But it's always interesting because we have such a unique mix of people on the podcast. So I always throw it out there just because it's fun to think about what really, really genuinely smart people are feeling is not being tended to at the scale at which they 
think it's appropriate. So I always toss that out there and it normally leads to a, a fun conversation. Yeah. So as far as what is the, you know, I guess probably best way to put maybe overlooked, you know, result of COVID. Uh, not necessarily COVID, just anything in the world today. Oh. COVID just happened to be an overwhelming. It was hard to do podcasts for a few months there <laughs> in, in lockdowns. It was hard to think and talk about anything else, but just in general. I would say, honestly, the resilience of a truly dedicated founder. To be honest, that's one of the toughest things that I've ever seen. And not tough as in it's difficult. It is, you know, they're tough, you know, and they're not every day. Not every founder is a good one. Not every CEO is a good one. You know, we saw plenty of companies that, you know, we talked to in December of 2019 and they were on a roll. And, you know, by all intents and purposes, they weren't serving hospitality. They weren't a travel company. Uh, they were just a typical software company and they just could not make it through the pandemic. We've talked to some CEOs, their business model did a complete 180. You know, they are in a completely different market offering something completely different. And they did it during the pandemic. They saw an opportunity and quickly capitalized on it. You know, they had to go outside their comfort zone. They had to make investors comfortable. They had to work with their team on completely changing their business model or their customer base. And they've done super well. A lot of people, I think, underestimate founders uh, sometimes. Granted, some get overestimated in that, you know, an idea can sometimes, you know, lead to a you know billion dollar valuation sooner than it should. But at the same time, you know, companies, I think, had a very hard time over the past few years. And, you know, if you're a good founder, and especially if you're the founder CEO, you figure out how to navigate that. You figure out how to work with limited or minimal resources. You figure out how to capitalize on an opportunity that probably didn't even exist, you know, six months earlier, but you've been able to save your company as a result. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a really good point. Resilience is such a great word for what the entrepreneurs who have continued to scale through the pandemic characterized. So I appreciate that. It's a really good insight. Are there any kind of takeaways that you want to share with the audience before we start to wrap up? And can you tell people how they can get in contact with you if they want to learn more about Venture Debt and Fifth Line? Yeah. So I'll start with the contact. Anyone, you know, our website, fifthline.co, 5thline.co. It's our website. You can find us on LinkedIn. You know, we try to make it, you know, pretty easy to come across us. As far as any key takeaways, I'd say, depending on the audience, if you're an investor in a company, and you're not looking to write the check that your you know, portfolio company needs, venture debt could be an option better than you think. You may not get the markup or the write-up as far as valuation in your book just yet, but you may get a better return on your overall investment. You know, Two years later, when they go to exit and you aren't diluted by another equity investor coming in. If you are a founder, CEO, CFO, whatever it may be in a company that's looking for capital, it might be available sooner than you think. It might be you know, a better alternative than you think. Equity is obviously the go-to fundraising process for companies, you know, because they do see all the splashy headlines about it. But it may be an opportunity sooner than you think to be able to get some capital on the balance sheet. And you may not get, you know, the valuation right up just yet. But two years later, you may be able to exit and own an extra 5 to 10% of the company as a result. Well, I don't think we can end on a, that was a perfect summary. Thank you so much, James. I'm not sure we could end on much higher of a note than that. So I think we should probably wrap, but thank you so much for uh, joining me on the Modern CFO podcast. And I know we'll be in touch soon. So I hope to have you back on the show. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Andrew. I appreciate it.